Hey guys, and welcome back to Murder's Intention Podcast. This is Samantha, and um, so just wanted to let you guys know, and you all is actually in Puerto Rico, um, having a two-month vacation. Lucky him. You know, well-deserved, I guess. guess. Um, Unfortunately, I'm stuck still working. (laughs) <laughs> so I, I can't, you know, take this vacation. But I figured since he's in Puerto Rico, um, and the biggest thing, one of the biggest things um, for the people in Puerto Rico, because I was raised in Puerto Rico, um, is wrestling. Like, if you weren't out at a club on a Saturday night or Sunday night, well, mostly Saturday, you were at... A wrestling event um, and it was just like it was it was a theme you know it was this thing that everybody grew up on you grew up going to a wrestling event because that was like one of the biggest things that would happen uh, I've actually met a lot of superstars who end up transferring over to what is now called WWE and a lot of them um, who started uh, was actually started, you know, like uh, for instance, um, Carlos Colon Jr., who now you guys know him as Carlito Colon, um, and he always does that, you know, I spit in your face, and he spits an apple, um, and he's been out of the the WWE for some time already, but I met him when he was in his Prime when he first entered the the wrestling world, and he was very new. He was not as big body as he became in the WWE. Um, and I actually have pictures, and I'm never so shy. I'm never shy to show the gratification that I had of seeing these people from when they first started because I admire like so many different other wrestlers, and. Um, so yeah, <laughs> it was it was it's an honor to be someone who has seen somebody, you know, go from beginning and where they led to, which is to WWE, uh, which is one of our biggest wrestling corporations that you want to get into, you know. And then a lot of people branch out. They're like, okay, I I I I mastered this. I got the big corporation, and they decide to make smaller corporations go into smaller corporations to assist over there and you know get a different opportunity because you're not always granted the same opportunity in a big corporation because there's more of business aspect in a bigger corporation than in a smaller corporation smaller corporations there's more chances for the little guy to come up and shine um which is the sad part but enough about the wrestling part um and in my point of view of it, in this episode today, we're going to talk about the sad part of it and an incident that happened in Puerto Rico. Um, no, I was not there. Thank the heavens. I was still a baby. I don't even think, wait, no. Uh, yeah, I was a baby. I was, at this point, I think I was, um, I probably was still in New York City. Um, at this point, I don't think I went to Puerto Rico yet during that time frame. 
But yeah. So here's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about, if you haven't heard about him, his name is Frank Donald Godish. His wrestling name is Bruiser Brody. Um, a lot of people have heard of him. A lot of people have not. Um, you might have also heard him as King Kong Brody, uh, Red River Jack, um, and a lot of a couple other names that he had went by. Um, so we're going to talk about what happened in Puerto Rico and why is there, is there a shadow on a certain individual? And I'm not saying this as like, ooh, kind of thing. I've actually seen, like I said, I, I was raised in Puerto Rico, so this is something I've seen. I've seen that the person who committed this act um, against uh, Brody, um, well, Godish, he does walk with this this thing not to try to let him, like, in the, on the TV, he'll let himself be amped up. But now he has become where he's more reserved. He will try to professionally, if something is starting to escalate, he will walk away. Um, which, not saying that, hey, you know, what he did was okay. But he has turned it into aspect like, okay, I almost lost everything I was working for because I let my my anger and my and my judgments slip away from me you know um and he has became this like christian type of person um he has became more of wanting to help the community as a way to pay back for his action he has done tries to go and make it work an amends but it's kind of hard to make an amends with the fact that You know, and I, I can't I can't be judgmental because I did admire the guy before I actually knew the story. But you can even before I knew the story, I always felt like there was something. What's going on? Why is he so careful not to escalate? You know, and then I heard the stories of how, you know, he's responsible for a person's death and how a lot of people feel he got away with it. A lot of people feel like there should have been more done to it. There should have been something, you know, and then there's people who feel like, okay, past is the past, we're gonna let it go. I, on the other hand, I am in between the walls because I do admire them as wrestlers, but I do know as a human being, there are consequences and no matter what you do, you should face up to it and be responsible for it. Um, and that's just the way I feel. You know, no criticism on the justice system in Puerto Rico or any of my um, friends and people who are Puerto Rican, but this is what I feel. So, you know, understand this is my opinion. I'm not speaking for everybody in, in general who is Latin. I'm not speaking for anybody in general who is a wrestling fan. These are just my opinions, okay? So to get to the story, um, we're gonna just go go in. Um, I'm gonna give you a quick update about his early life, and then we'll just like, you know, move on forward of it. 
Um, so in his professional life, um, so there's not a, being honest, there's not a lot of stuff, um, that gave me a lot of information about him like that. Um, so, yeah. So, Godish was an all-state football and basketball player in Warren High School, Michigan, and he played football at West Texas A&M University, which at that time was called um, West Texas State. And with four teams over three seasons in the TFL and the COFL, so he was pretty like very active guy. He was very into football, which also explains why he was, you know, he was a big guy, you know. Um, in his personal life, though, uh, prior to his wrestling career, Godish worked as a sports writer in San Antonio, Texas. Godish was married on June 4th, 1968 to Nola Marie Meese. Uh, the marriage did end in divorce on October 12th, 1970, and then Godish's second wife, a New Zealand... New Zealander uh, Barbara Smith remained with him until his death in 1988. She had stated that while his wrestling persona was known for brutality and being uncontrollable, Brody, Brody was not the same type of guy at home. At home, he was completely opposite. He was caring, he was loving, he spent you know, every moment he could with his family and being there, you know. So he knew he was going to be a provider for his family, and he knew that there was going to be moments where he wasn't going to be there all the time with them. But it was a sacrifice he was going to take to be a provider for his family, you know. So Brody and, and Smith lived in Texas. They... So together they had a beautiful little boy named Jeffrey Dean, and he was born November 7th, 1980. And I, I know I probably I skipped over it, didn't I? So Brody was born, just so that you guys know. Um, I keep calling him Brody, but that's because that's like his wrestling name, and that's how most people identify him as. Um, and he was born in June 18th, 1946 in Uniontown, Pennsylvania. Okay, so, um, <clears throat> so just imagine, this guy is six feet tall, eight inches, and he weighs 300 pounds, which that's like, <laughs> you're, you're huge, dude. You're huge. You're tall, you can squash me. I'm, on, I, I'm only 5'3". And he's six feet eight, so yeah, I, I would have been like having neck pains to the wazoo, man. To the wazoo. So, if you haven't realized, Brody was an American professional wrestler who he earned, like I said, he earned his fame name under the, he earned his fame under the ring name Bruiser Brody. And like I also said, he worked as King Kong Brody, the Max Mar Marador, and Red River Jack. 
So over the years, Brody became synonymous with the hardcore wrestling rolling styles that often saw one or more of the partic participants bleeding by the time the match was over. Which, this is also no unknown fact in Puerto Rico, where, like, your big main events, there's always gotta be blood. There's always. Um, he's fought with Adula Butcher. He's fought with Carlos Colon. He's fought with so many of other guys that it's like, okay, yep, these guys, those guys are legends for bleeding. Um, and their foreheads are proof of that, to be honest. So in his prime, he worked as a special attraction wrestler in North America, making select appearance for various promotions such as World Class Championship Wrestling, also known as WCCW, Worldwide Wrestling Federation, WWWF, Central States, Res States Wrestling, CSW, Championship Wrestling from Florida, CWF, and the American Wrestling Association, AWA, which I I'm pretty familiar with the AWA because um, a lot of our older wrestlers did come from AWA. And he even would work regularly in Japan um, for the the wrestling corporation of All Jap Japan Pro Wrestling, AJPW. So, now let me take a, a breath. So, after he attended the West Texas A&W and working as a sports writer, Brody was trained to wrestle by Fritz von Erich. His his first wrestled he first wrestled in Dallas, Fort Fort Worth, and later Louisiana. As Bruiser Brody and King Kong Brody, the later a a latter, a name he used in the Midwest, Midwestern um, promotions, out of respect for Dick the Bruiser. Godish competed as a freelancer in several companies, including, like I said, you know, CSW, WF, Southwest Championship Wrestling, Windy City Wrestling, World Wrestling Council, which is in. So, World Wrestling Council is actually the one that he fought in Puerto Rico. Okay. Uh, Deep South Wrestling, Championship Wrestling from Florida, American Wrestling Association, World Class Championship Wrestling. In the States, he had numerous feuds with, like, with the likes of, like, Kamala the Uganda Giant, Abdullah the Butcher, and Crusher Jeremy Blackwell. In Japan, he was a he was in a tag team with Stan Hansen. Brody had a reputation for refusing to to job to other wrestlers. He also competed under the moniker moniker of Red River Jack in Texas during an angle against Gary Hartsman and the Scandard 
Akbar Army in the World Class Championship Wrestling. Brody also competed at the as the mass um Merida at the um and he only did it for one time at AWA. Um the championship ouch. I just I'm sorry, I'm I i just like stubbed my toe. I don't know how I did it, but it's just like ow. <laughs> um in nineteen seventy six so he went to Vince J. McMahon, which we all know who that is. Um, and that's actually the dad, just letting you know. That's actually the dad. Um, and at that time, like I said, it was called Worldwide Wrestling Federation. So it was like three W's and an F. Um, where he changed, he challenged the champion Bruno Sammartino but he was unsuccessful in winning the championship um, so Brody also teamed with Big John Studd it was also in WWF where he wrestled Invader 1 Jose Gonzalez which that's where they first met okay now Jose Gonzalez is the, the guy from um, Puerto Rico I was telling you about okay and that guy is gonna come into play later on um, for whom he refused to sell um, so I'm not always like a hundred percent sure on what they meant by that um, but a lot of people say that okay so just going really quick into this. Um, so when they say sell, it's basically to react to something in a way which makes it appear believable and legitimate to the audience. Typically refers to the physical action by a wrestler of making an opponent opponent move moves look impactful, but it can be used to refer to any aspect of the work presentation notably including commentary reactions compare no sell and oversell in 1985 he had a very short stint with the new japan pro wrestling in a feud with antonio inoki and many of their matches ended in no contestants or disqualification in 1987, Brody began working primarily for the World Wrestling Council in Puerto Rico after being fired from New Japan. Brody continued his feud with Abdullah the Butcher as well as engaging in a feud with Carlos Colon. He briefly returned to All Japan Pro Wrestling to win his last NWA International Heavyweight Championship. On April 15, 1988-he briefly returned to All Japan Pro Wrestling to win his last NWA International Heavyweight Championship. On April 15, 1988, the first attempt to form what became the Triple Crown Heavyweight Championship 
was done when Brody faced off against NWA, United Na National, National, and PWF champion Genichiro Tenrui. Hopefully, I said that right. Um, so the result was a double countout. Brody lost the title to Jumbo Tusurada four days later. In WCCW, <clears throat> sorry. Um, so in in WCCW in Texas, he was actually a babyface, most often against Abdullah the Butcher. However, against Abdullah in Montreal, he was a heel managed by Floyd Critchman. While while there there Tim Killer Brooks acted as his brother Buster Brody. Brody was in an ongoing feud with the Russian brute, who later went on to AWA fame with the manager Ox Baker. Due to his huge reputation in Japan, promoter Shohi Baba had the the tap the match taped and later aired in Japanese TV. In Florida, he beat B. Brian Blair for the Florida State Championship. Brody had an infamous cage match with Lex Luger in Florida on January 21st, 1987. In the middle of the match, Brody stopped working and stood around. Luger and Bill Alfonso, the referee of the match, were puzzled and attempted to speak to Brody while who did not respond. Luger and Alfonso decided to forge the plan finish to the match, and Alfonso disqualified Luger in a spot where Luger continually punched Brody in a corner and did not back off. After the match, Luger recalls asking Brody if he did anything wrong to upset, upset him, to which Brody responded, no, but Brody's reasons for not working were not very clear, stating that the match just wasn't working. In Larry Masik's book, Wrestling at the at the Chase, uh, Masik states that before the match, Brody told him, I'm not putting up with any of his I don't know curse, I forgot to do it again. Um, any of his bullshit and that Brody was upset that Luger would not sell for him. However, when when watching the match, it is clear that Luger, Luger did sell for Brody. In a later shot interview, Bill Alfonso said that there was a miscommunication issue on who would lead the match and there was no ill will ever brought ever between the two. Another scenery was that Brody was... Uh, Brody was upset with the promoters over his paycheck. Brody had a contingency history with wrestling promoters for which, for much of his career, and he decided to embrace embarrass the promotion by being uncooperative in the match. In 1987, he returned to AWA where he fought Greg Gain and Jerry Blackwell. Despite his reputation as being 
disagreeable with promoters. He would aid any who needed a boost in ticket sales as he was guaranteed to bring in crowds. While working for <laughs> while working for WCCW in Texas, he was the booker and producer their T and produce, produced their TV program. So now we're going to lead up to where it leads to his um, death. Um, just because this is not really, uh, there's not a lot of like knowledge of a lot of stuff. Um, everybody has their own opinion on things um, in certain aspects. And I just wanted to stay to what was facts that we can, like everybody was saying the same thing. Everybody's. You know, all the articles are in agreement, too. So, on July 16th, 1988, Brody was in the locker room before his scheduled match with Dan Spiri at Juan Ramon Luberin um, Stadium in Bayamon, which I've been there, and it's a really really beautiful stadium, being honest. Uh, You can get lost at times if if you've never been there. But um, it's a really beautiful place. Um, it, it was actually close to where I used to live. I used to live in Tualta. Um, Bayamon was like um, was like thirty, not really thirty minutes, but like fifteen to thirty minutes away from my location. And we would go like anytime there was a Bayamon event, we went there. Um, and so Bayamon is like uh. It's a city near the metropolitan area of San Juan, Puerto Rico. So, yeah, it's, it's an easy tourist where tourists can go into Bayamon and they're like, ooh, ah, kind of thing, you know, and not just be stuck in the tourist area. They can actually see Puerto Rico in a different aspect. Um, so when Jose Huertas Gonzalez, a fellow wrestler and booker, um, which is Invader. Remember I said he's going to come back into play. Alleji asked him to step into the shower area to discuss business. Um, everybody agrees that this happened. You know, he said, hey, let's, can we talk? Um, and the thing is that when they entered, when Brody entered the room, he was with Dutch Mantel, who was another, who is a very known wrestler in Puerto Rico and now he does matches and he's very known for being a big mouth don't care what he has got to say he will if he has to piss the crowd off to hype the crowd he's gonna do it you know um and I think he's awesome and he's very truthful to what he says you know so what he was saying was that they walked into uh the locker room that day and Carlos Colon and Jose Gonzalez, um, Jose Gonzalez was in one corner um, working on the strap that Jose, um, Jose Gonzalez used to wear on his arm um, and tightening it and whatnot. Um, and they didn't acknowledge um, Dutch Mantel and they didn't acknowledge Brody. And they were like, Okay, whatever, you know. So they sat in front of the shower area and 
everybody was just quiet in their own zone, you know, getting ready, getting dressed and whatnot. And Dutch was feeling the tension. So he decided he needed to get out the locker room and just like take a breath. So he decided he was going to do his ritual, which was uh, go to where the, go to the curtain where the, and then see the crowd, see what is he working for? What is he, you know, how is he going to play this, you know, when he goes out? Um, And it was like only like maybe five to six minutes. But during that time, this is what occurred. That he was, when he stepped out. So, when he stepped out, everybody's saying there was an argument between the two wrestlers and a scuffle ensued. So, everybody's assuming they're, you know, oh my gosh, they're fighting in the shower, you know. And due to the design of the dressing room, there was no witness to the altercation. However, two screams were heard loud enough for the entire locker room to hear it. Um, so Tony Atlas, who is also another um, WWE Hall of Famer, um, he ran to the shower and saw Brody bent over and holding his stomach. Atlas then looked up at Gonzalez and, and saw he was holding a knife. So due to the heavy traffic outdoors and the loud crowd in the stadium, it took the paramedics close to an hour to reach Brody, which that I can honestly say is true because, um, so the events normally start at eight o'clock and if you're not there by like six o'clock, six thirty, you're basically walking into heavy traffic to park your car for these events. Um, and you're basically having to, it's like going to a concert or it's like going to one of the WWE wrestling events. If you've ever been to one of those, it, it, it's very, it's very crazy. Um, or think about it as this, like you're trying to drive, drive in the traffic of um, Orlando or New York City during traffic hour, which, you know depends on which way you're going um you know so that's where it becomes very difficult when it's a and at that time you know how now if you hear the ambulance you pull to the side let the ambulance come through at that time that wasn't the case so the ambulance actually had to like follow traffic and it's sad how life was back then but yeah So, when the paramedics arrived, Atlas helped carry Brody downstairs to the waiting ambulance as, due to Brody's size, paramedics were unable to lift him. Remember, like I said, he was 300 pounds, 6 feet 8. He later died from his stab wounds. Um... And Gonzalez claimed self-defense. So, people knew what was going on, but people stayed quiet, okay? And I'm going to give you later um, the version that Dutch Mantel also says um, occurred. So, just hold on for that. Um, so, Brody's 
So Brody arrived to the hospital, and then he was pronounced dead. Um, not dead on arrival, but he was later after trying to help him out. It was just nothing they could do. So Gonzalez claimed self-defense and testified in his own defense, and he was acquitted for the murder in 1989. But it was because... Their witnesses, so anybody who was there that night hauled ass. Like, if you were not from Puerto Rico, you hauled ass and you went back to the States or wherever you came from because you did not want to be part of that and you did not want to have the same issue Brody had. So you hauled ass. Now, the prosecution's witness living outside of the of Puerto Rico did not show up, claiming they had not received their summons until after the trial had ended so fellow wrestlers Dutch Mantel and Tony Atlas have said that in the 1970s when Brody and Gonzalez had wrestled each other Brody had wrestled very roughly and beat up Gonzalez um SD Jones claims after one such match Gonzalez said to him one day I'm gonna kill that man um, and then in April of 2019, Brody's death was featured on on um, Vice's channel of Dark Side of the Ring, Season 1, Episode 3. So you can get more details on that episode, which I use some of those details um, too. And um, which it also includes Dutch Mantel's... Um, interview tony atlas and a dude the butcher um and a lot of them because so because a lot of them still wrestle in over there they don't want to say a lot you know because it's like mm, you know um so they, they're not gonna reveal too much sadly you know um But let me read to you the version that Dutch Mantel um, So hold on. Uh, I just found my page that actually says a little bit more. And what happened was, and you're probably saying, well, how did he get a knife into the shower without Brody seeing him? So he actually, being honest, he actually, I just looked over my paperwork. Um, He actually had the knife in a towel in his right hand. So basically, no one saw it. Everybody just thought that he was carrying a towel, which at that time, since you're getting ready, you would normally carry a towel with you because you're getting sweaty and you're, you know, you just want to like dry off some um but yeah it's just like i know i i had this because i was just like a moment ago reading it and i just want to Kind of like bring it back up. 
Okay. So. Now this is from Dutch Mantel's um, point of view in a lot of the things. Uh, so I'm just going to read like what he says and everything. Just so you have that um, view of it. So. Dutch Mantel who was at the scene wrote what he saw that day he writes it's already it was a, already known that jose gonzalez was the man that stabbed and killed bruce brody everybody knew that everybody could read to it he fled self-defense and partly due to a weak justice system in puerto rico and partly due to the fact that nobody was at gonzalez trial on behalf of brody gonzalez was acquitted the controversy surrounds why the men that were subpoenaed never got to Puerto Rico to testify. Yes, it is true that certain wrestlers would not talk, but there were many who were willing to talk. Unfortunately, they never got their chance. So he goes into the day of what happened. He says, I arrived in Puerto Rico for a two-day run on a Saturday afternoon. After deplaning and collecting my bags, I made my way to the hotel um and he was like the hotel was a great place in puerto rico by standards you know because they had cable with a remote and in air condition in room air conditioning that that was like at that time that was a luxury so he met with browser in the lobby of the hotel where they were also to meet tony atlas bruiser told him that Tony had arranged a ride for the three of us, the three of them, with a guy who operated a local gym and who was a big wrestling fan. After a few minutes, Atlas arrived and they deported, departed to Bayamon Stadium around 6 p.m. The trip takes about 20 minutes, so they were there early for the show. So everything was fine. It, you know, they did some small talk in the car on their way over. Um, they collected their bags from the trunk um, upon arrival and entering the stadium. They headed for the dressing room. Now, I'm going to go exactly with what how he said it now, um, just so you guys get and understand his the way he saw things going on. So he says, but as we entered the dressing room, I felt tension in the air. I always, I also, I mean, not awesome. I always felt tension in the air there. It, as it's an extremely dangerous place to work. But that night, it was really heavy. Don't ask me why. I don't even know. I just felt it. As I entered, I followed. I was following Bruiser and I noticed Carlos Colon and Invader, Jose Gonzalez, sitting on a bench to my right. Invader was trying on the leather strap that he wears on his arm with his teeth. Neither spoke. Thinking back on it, I don't believe any acknowledgement was made to Brody, Brody either. I followed Brody to the rear of the room, directly in front of the shower door. There were other guys who were already there, the Young Bloods, TNT, who's also known as Sabio Vega, Roberto Santos, and Castillo Jr. 
were in various stages of unpacking and getting ready. I've always hated the dressing room, so I sat down briefly and still feeling uneasy about the tension that I felt, decided to go back to go and check the crowd. That is a ritual with me. I always check out the crowd or arena when I get there just to familiarize myself in it with it. So Bayamon Stadium is a baseball stadium. So I arose from my chair and headed through a tunnel to get to the field. It also it's only about a hundred feet through the tunnel, so I and I stood watching the crowd fill in and for no more than three minutes and I had had not been gone from the dressing room no no longer than five or six minutes at most. But when I returned, my eyes met Hara. Dutch Mattel continued. The whole dressing room was chaotic. The first person I saw was Chris Youngblood. He asked me what had happened. I asked him what had happened. He was almost hysterical and said, and he said, Jose stabbed Brody. I'm not going to go hysterically saying it. Um, just so you guys know. Um, then... He goes on to say, I still did not know what he meant, but I look deeper into the room. I saw Brody laying prone on the floor with several guys surrounding him. I thought that some guy named Jose had rushed into the room and attacked Brody. Everybody in PR is named Jose, which is a familiar name. <laughs> so I looked again at Chris again, and he said, Invader, Invader stabbed Brody. It was, it was Benlim into the, the dressing room. Now everything, everything started to move in slow motion. I remember walking over to where Brody was laying and just staring in disbelief. A doctor is also present in San Juan and he was crying. Brody was, was concussed and, and as I looked closer... I could see a stab wound about an inch long and deep with air bubbles escaping from it. Much later, the doctor told me that meant the blade had pierced the lung. Brody was telling telling promoters... Hold on, sorry, I had to take a moment. Um... Okay, it's just, it gets a little heavy, so you always want to just, like, take a moment to recoup, you know, get that, huh. So Brody was telling promoter Carlos Colon to take care of his family. Um, I didn't see a lot of blood, but again, later... I learned that he was hemorrhaging, hemorrhaging internally. So he was bleeding inside, not outside. I believe that Broser knew he was going to die. This can't be happening. I thought to myself, this can't be real. But real it was. I am not a very religious person. But I eased over in a corner out of everyone's way and prayed for Broser. 
bruiser. I then found myself looking through a Pepsi glass door that led into the shower. The door was kind of translucent Pepsi glass that distorted image images somewhat. But I saw the invader and Victor Huavica Huvika screaming at each other in the shower room. Noise was everywhere. I couldn't make out what they were saying, but even if I could could have heard them, they were speaking Spanish, which they often do. But I could see that a struggle was in process progress. Invader and Juan Huvika. Um I keep remembering I gotta say it in Spanish because some of these names are in Spanish. Um, were shoving each other. It seemed as though Invader was attempting to leave and Huvika was trying to stop him. Brody was still on the floor. The doctor was working furiously to do what he could to help him. A call went out for an ambulance and it seemed like an eternity before aid arrived. And they didn't even get the call through the official channels. Victor Quinones called a local radio station and told them to broadcast that an ambulance was needed immediately at the station at the stadium. A paramedic crew was eating at a nearby McDonald's and heard the request on the radio. So yeah. So by the time the paramedics got there, it was like twenty five minutes already. Um and that's when Atlas in a state of shock, um, as the rest of them while the paramedics was preparing Bruiser to be t to take him to the emergency room, um, he okay. So hold on, let me rewind because I just got messed up there. Brody, by the time the paramedics had arrived, had lain there for over twenty five minutes. Atlas was in a state of shock, as everybody else. While the paramedics were preparing Bruiser to take him to the emergency room, Judge Mattel witnessed Invader leaving the shower, walking around the feet of Brody, grabbing his car keys and leave. Finally, after what seemed like an eternity, Brody was loaded onto the gurney and told and taken out. Brody, by the time, by this time, had been at least forty minutes, been down for forty minutes. The paramedics couldn't lift him, hip, lift him. Um, so Tony Atlas, almost by himself, carried Brody four or five steps to transport him to the ambulance. Tony went with Brody to the hospital. At this point, nobody knew what to say or even what had happened. But I knew enough to stand back and observe the situation. Puerto Ricans basically didn't like the American boys coming down there and taking the money that they felt was rightfully theirs. And since I was in the dark as to what happened, I was watching to see what would happen next. Chris Youngblood told me that Invader had approached Brody and requested that he accompany him to the shower to talk business. He said that Invader handed Invader's hand was covered with a towel. Then he said he heard screaming and a commotion inside the shower and then seeing Brody stumble through the door holding his chest. Brody went down he didn't collapse, but went down under under his own control. That was just before I got back into the room. The guys in the other dressing room knew that something had happened, but were kept in the dark as to what it was. 
at last by the time by this time um returned to the stadium atlas by this time had returned to the stadium and he kept saying that brody was going to die i told tony to stop saying that but tony by this time was out of control completely the whole situation was out of control some police officers entered the room and tony began to tell them what happened but they couldn't understand english the strange thing about it though they didn't take it seriously they would smile and mutter at to each other because they, they just thought it was another you know wild pr angle time time moved slow atlas was screaming by now he was screaming at the cops who weren't understanding a thing he was saying he tried to enlist an interpreter interpreter to tell them what happened and then invader reappeared nobody knew where he had gone but I surmised that he went home because he came back with a different shirt on. He came right back as though nothing had happened and started conducting business as usual. He completely ignored Atlas, who looked wild by now. Atlas pleaded with several PR boys to translate, but they looked at Invader and walked away. See what happens? So to cut this kind of short um it's basically more of the fact that a lot of things basically happens and you know sadly you know everybody knew basically like i said if they were to snitch they might end up like brody and they didn't want that um but Finally, Robert Santo Soto said he he'll interpret. It was was to no avail. The cops grew up grew up watching Carlos and Invader, so to them they were big stars and they were just ordinary policemen. I was on the last I was on the la the last that night, and Atlas and I left the stadium and headed for the hospital that Brody had been taken to um a medical centro was the name of it and somebody was had told me that it was the best medical facility on the island which it is being honest it is um as we were walking into the hospital i met the surgeon who had already operated on brody i asked him about brody's status and he just looked at me and said it was tough it was touch and go brody never left the operating room they actually performed two surgeries that night i was i always believed that if brody had been in an american hospital he would have still been alive what brody actually died from was loss of blood he literally bled to death on the table during the second operation. When I got back to my hotel room, I told the desk clerk that if any calls came in for Brody, direct them to my room. I couldn't sleep. I was staying with one of the midgets, the Irish leprechauns. The phone rang. The little guy answered the phone and told me it was Brody's wife. I looked at my watch. It was five o'clock in the morning. How would I say this 
without causing undue panic. I calmly explained to her that Frank had been in an accident and she should get to PR as quickly as could. I told her that it was serious and I thought he'll be alright. That it was serious, but I thought he'll be alright. I hung up the phone. Again, I looked at my watch. It was 5.20. Brody dies at 5.40 a.m. After the call, I could not sleep. I tossed and turned and finally got up. I went down to the front desk around 7.30 a.m. The girl on duty was an American from Chicago who spoke Spanish. I asked her to call the hospital and find out what room Brody was in. That's when I found out he was dead. No words could describe how I felt. The girl at the desk got tears in her eyes. She told me that she was so sorry. I just went outside the hotel and sat down for a while. How could this happen? While I was sitting there, Buddy Landley came over and asked how Brody was. It was all I could do. It was all I could do to tell him. And he was, he said, cut the BS. I guess he could tell by the look in my eyes that I wasn't kidding. We were supposed to go to Maya West this, that afternoon, but I never even packed my bags. I knew that I wasn't going. Miguelito Perez came to pick me up, but when I told him the news, he refused to go too. Most of the PR guys didn't hear the news until... They got to town that afternoon, but after they heard of Brody's death, they refused to go to the ring. I heard that it was a sold-out 25,000 house. They sent the fans home, telling them that they could use the tickets next week. I don't believe they told them the real reason why. Later that afternoon, we were in Atlas's room. Present at the time was Atlas myself. Speary, Jaggers, Ron Starr, and Dan Kratz. I had been waiting all day for somebody to contact me, but nothing seemed to be happening. I learned later that the WWC office was stonewalling information on the wrestlers' whereabouts. Atlas stated that we had to tell somebody. I then remembered the names of the detectives that the girl at the desk had given me when she made the call to the hospital that morning. Orlando Figueroa? and Pedro Calanero and Hector Quinones. Uh, Atlas talked to one of the detectives on the phone and told him we who we were, where, where we were. The detectives said that they'll be right over and they were in, were in about 10 minutes. They came into the room and asked a few questions, then transported Atlas to headquarters. Tony left the hotel around 5 p.m. He did not return until 10 p.m. I started to get worried about him, but when he came back, he told me that they he told me them that they t he told them that they wanted to talk to me. Of course I agreed. The station looked like something you expected to find in El Salvador, hot and sticky with no air conditioning and a big overhead fan. I told them what I had seen and afterward signed a sworn deposition as to my testimony. I could only swear as to what I actually saw. 
but I did my part. As I was leaving, I saw TNT and Miguelito Perez there. I didn't ask them any questions, and they did not ask me any either, so I don't know what their statement said. I was told by the detectives that Jose Gonzalez would be charged for first-degree murder and advised me that when the time for the trial came, I, I would be subpoenaed and transported back to PR to testify. They told me that airfare and hotel would be arranged for me and that security would be provided. That's what they said. However, that's not what they did. They were depressed. I was depressed when I left Puerto Rico and even, even more so when I got to Birmingham. If you've ever been in Birmingham, you'll know what I mean. I told my wife the details of everything that happened. She told me that nothing would be done to Jose Gonzalez. I got mad at her. How could something not be done? I told her to wait and see. I waited and I saw that she was right. So, like I said, um, in this case, basically, it was more of because they sent the subpoenas out late, um, it didn't arrive to the States on time, and no one was able to say, yes, you know, this is what happened. They've been having a feud for a while already, and, you know, Jose was just tired of being chopped down to size by a bigger guy and and worst of all an american guy you know um that's my opinion um but in this case we will never know um unless they were to bring it back up and try to charge him for something else because they can't charge him for first degree murder again as that is double jeopardy so yeah unfortunately um but uh that is the case for this week um if you guys want any other more wrestling cases just let me know i will definitely get them to you um so as a ritual, like what we always do, I will say bye, and I will let you guys, you know, if you guys have any cases you want, just email me at murderousintention20, yeah, murderousintention21 at gmail.com, or you can Instagram us at murderous underscore intention underscore podcast, or you can tweet us at capital M, capital I, True Cry Podcast. Thank you guys and enjoy your weekend. Bye.